The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you ready? It's From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is our Yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Boston Podcast. Uh, and I used to, as I used to say on the Red Sox broadcast, pull up a chair and join us today as we continue with this journey we do here, the voices and the stories of your city. And I could not have a more appropriate guest, given what we are and given what he is and what he does. It's Jason Faulkner from the Old Dirty Boston Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, and um, welcome, Jason. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me in here. Uh, <laughs> now, now, so you could, I can tell already. Jason is an is a ex- excellent podcaster because he just pulled this little uh, prank, not a prank, but a little maneuver on me. I think would be fair to say. I came in. I welcomed him. I offer. I think I offered you a beverage. I hope I did. You did. I okay. saw whiskey in the cabinet. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. It's there, early, but yeah. Well, we don't judge here at. Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network, where we produce podcasts. See how I weave that in there? Um, By the way, before we get started with Jason, I do need to thank our sponsors, U.S. Postal Service, second largest employer in the United States, offering paid training and ways to move up. Apply today at usps.com backslash careers, U.S. Postal Service, deliver for the nation. So what I was saying was Jason, who uh, is, again, host of the Old Dirty Boston Podcast, we started talking, and I was kind of doing the chit-chat and going to ask him how I should introduce him. And he said, well, we, you can just roll tape, and we'll just do this on the pod. And so that is the essence of good podcasting and good storytelling, and let's get the raw stuff out there. And he said he has some questions for me, and I'm slightly scared. But um, <laughs> but let me, listen to you. let me let you talk, Jason. So you want to tell us, tell us what the podcast is all about? I've listened to a few. I like it, but... Um, but tell us what Old Dirty Boston is and, uh, and what the podcast is all about. Uh, so I grew up in Somerville, mm-hmm. and I was born uh, in the early 80s, so I graduated high school around 2001, and I've had a kind of a front row seat for how the city has changed. Uh, I think Somerville is a prime example, but Boston as a whole. And in some ways, the city used to be a little bit rougher, used to have a different identity, uh, and if you go even further back, if you go into like the 60s and the 70s, the city really had an edge uh, and an identity to it. And I really do feel like that's kind of being washed away. Um, even the way that people speak, the accent, uh, that hard-nosed, gritty Boston, um, isn't necessarily the Boston that you see today. So there's so the, much historical... The, the accent is people are losing the accent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if you walk around downtown Boston, I had a, a friend from L.A., very attractive young lady. She came to visit. and uh, Good story so far. Right. <laughs> and she says, I was going to be out of town, so I said, you know, I'm sorry I can't show you around. I said, why don't you jump on Tinder and see, like, find a guy to show you around. <laughs> she said, okay. She said, Bold. you know what I want? She said, I want goodwill hunting. To show yeah. me Boston, the real Boston. Fucking Will. Will's going to show you around Cambridge and fucking Harvard Square. Exactly. And, uh, they said, yeah, maybe we'll go to Fenway. You know, honestly, I don't think Goodwill Hunting lives in Boston anymore. <laughs> he might live in like Saugus or, you know. Well, it's, well, that was Southie through and through. But what Hollywood misses sometimes is, I think, kind of what you're getting at is not everybody in Boston has a Boston accent. I mean, I'm intrigued of the fact that you think it's, it's maybe all fading away. Which is totally possible because, you know, I, I think I'm stating the obvious, but due to technology and how it's easy to travel and everything like that, there's a lot more, uh, what do you call it, like transients, like people from other places. And Boston's a great city, so we probably get a lot of people landing here from other places and then raising kids, and they don't necessarily pick up the accent. You don't oh, have yeah, any- and I think um, there used to be much more of a local flavor to every city. So, you know, the restaurants, the food that you ate. Right. Uh but now with television and media, everything's kind of universal. Like Starbucks is the primary coffee shop. All those, yeah. it's just in a sense, it's unifying us, but it's also taking away some of uh, our own culture and identity of who we really are. And I, I know I've been guilty of that in the past because I'll be in a different city and just out of laziness, 
I'll go to Starbucks because I know what I can get at Starbucks. And when really, if I were to, I should sample the local flavor, literally, and find, you know, a coffee shop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I personally, I have nothing against it. I mean, I own a home in Somerville, and I'm loving the fact that my neighbors aren't, you know, throwing beer cans in the yard and getting in (laughs) fights every other weekend. it's good for me, and it's good in that sense. But I also have some nostalgia for that. Like, you know, growing up, my uncles at cookouts and barbecues would have a few too many beers and tell us crazy stories about sneaking into Boston Garden or hanging out in the combat zone. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff, for whatever reason, really sticks to me. And, like, it's the memories that I enjoy. I love that tradition of storytelling. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's what the podcast for me is all about. It's trying to get some of those characters in there that I think identify the real old, dirty Boston mentality and, and style. and uh. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, just you mentioned the combat zone, like that alone. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. And you recently talked to a former stripper slash hooker. And if you don't mind, Jason, I've got a little bit of that right here. Let's take a listen. So I was looking through the classifieds in the Boston Globe, and I came across an ad looking for dancers, hostesses. I, I had no idea what I was getting myself involved in. I, I would have never in a million years thought that I would be doing this. I was exhilarated. In this episode, I'm talking to N.J. Osberg. N.J. was a former stripper and prostitute working in Boston's notorious combat zone. She talks about the bars, the clubs, the pimps, and the drug scene. Step into this world with myself and NJ. She relives some of the stories and some of the feelings and emotions that she went through at that time. Is MJ a pseudonym or...? No, NJ is actually her name. (laughs) E-N-J-A-E. Oh, NJ. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So that, by the way, fantastic teaser right right there that's the opening moments of the jason's podcast old dirty boston podcast might as well tell people where where they go to find that uh you can go to the website um old dirty boston podcast uh you can also the best way to follow it honestly is go on instagram just follow old dirty boston on instagram because we're always posting our newest episode our links uh it's hosted on a libsyn page Okay. And so it's one of those longer URLs. But check out Old Dirty Boston Instagram okay. and uh, give us a listen there. And we'll always update you on like where you can find it, how you can download it. And the more you, you talk about this, Jason, the more I remember. So I was, I was born in 68. So I'm, I'm sorry, what year did you say you were born in? I was born in 83. 83, okay. So I'm obviously older. And I, so I kind of experienced a decade before... Well, more than a decade before you, but uh, nevertheless, I remember when there was a combat zone. I remember when, you know, as a teenager, the thing was, you know, we wanted to find some place where we could go downtown and drink and we had terrible fake IDs. And so we would end up in the North End and try to find some friendly establishment where, you know, it was kind of like a wink and a nod and you guys just sit in the back, we'll bring you some beers. And, you know, it, it was just kind of a friendly aspect of the north end but we would like to get there we would walk through the combat zone and i remember being scared shitless and now in boston proper anyway anywhere anyway you know uh, there isn't a place where i don't feel safe which is a good thing mind you right but but you know the combat zone was kind of the dirty edge of boston and i mean sometimes around you know down by the garden even you'd be leaving a celtics game and i remember my dad holding my hand and me being petrified of like you know, the homeless people or the hookers or whatever. And um, so is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I think uh, so. And I'm not painting this brush of like, oh, this was such a great time. It was so amazing. But there was something to it where you knew in Boston that if you got out of line or you said the wrong thing, the odds of someone punching you in the face were pretty high. (laughs) Like the threat of violence was very legitimate and very real. And it kept people in a certain line. It's sort of like you had to tow, hey, I'm in Boston and this is how I should act and keep people in check. And I think there's such this uh, disconnection now between younger people who are coming into the city and these older people who have been here for years. And they're, the older people are almost resentful of like, hey, you don't get to act that way. You don't get to be so happy and free and like <laughs> yelling and you know pride parades and all this stuff. They felt like, no, we have to be a little more boxed in and a little more conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and I think that's a real juxtaposition. And I'm not saying it's the right identity by any means. I'm just saying it is a real identity, and I'm trying to preserve that. Because I don't think those people are 100% right or wrong or anything. I just think in 10 years, 15 years, they're not going to be here to tell that story and give you that point of view. Mm -hmm. So I really want to get it now before it's kind of washed away. It is absolutely uh, a part of the character of the city. Um, And you mentioned you know, if you got out of line you'd get punched in the face. And it's funny how you sort of remember those days uh, with affection. <laughs> well, have you ever been punched in the face? I have been punched in the face okay. a couple times, yeah. <laughs> and, I punched a couple faces too. Not, <laughs> wasn't all receiving. Yeah, no, I mean, but um, that, that, that sort of roughness was, so, you're, you're describing it as sort of a code almost, you know? Yeah, there was an unspoken code of ethics and action Um, And it's almost like you were in a club, you know, like you knew how to maneuver that and you knew how to find some comfort in that. Personally, I was usually uncomfortable. I was usually a little scared and nervous and uptight in any neighborhood because of those threats of violence and Mm -hmm. that kind of feeling. But being surrounded by that also gave me a bit of a character. Mm -hmm. It gave me like you have to learn how to be confident in the face of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to learn how to be funny in the face of that. We need to learn how to use humor or anything to kind of overcome it. Um, and I think now for that to be removed completely, it's, it softens things up a little. I think that was represented symbolically by the rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers probably better than, than in other sports because it, it's not as if Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish grew up in Boston. They certainly didn't. But they they were like they cheerfully adopted the attitude of the city to some degree, and then there they are playing the Lakers in the mid '80s. There, I mean, my favorite one was '84, partly because the Celtics won that that championship. But and there's Kevin McHale clotheslining Kurt Rambis as he goes up for a, for a layup, which is one of the dirtiest plays in NBA history. But it was the bad boys from Boston against the 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 flash and dash Hollywood Showtime Lakers. Jack Nicholson over there, and here we got you know our gang with I don't know if we had a celebrity you know uh, mascot at the time, but you know Red Auerbach, who's a uh, uh, New York guy, I guess, but you know tough guy, kind of tough edge guy with an attitude, um, and that was cool and. Um, you know, it, it made you sort of proud to be, and then like you know, the 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 crowd at the Garden would be ruthless to the the Lakers. Like, go back to fucking L.A., fucking Hollywood. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> work here, buddy. Right. So um, now you probably you so you were too young to remember those Celtics days, I guess. But it's interesting oh, no. how you Larry Bird in my house. Oh, you remember was, Bird? Okay, he was a god. Basketball Jesus. He, and I'm gra- I'm really happy that you brought that up because honestly, Larry Bird exemplifies that personality. It's yeah. that hard nosed, hard working. I'm just gonna out hustle you and outwork you. But there's no flash. Right. You didn't see Larry Bird in a mink coat. You didn't right. see him, you know, driving a Lamborghini. Larry Bird was like a down home, yeah. stoic character. Yeah. No. He he famously left his MVP trophy in the back of his pickup truck for a couple of years and just kind of forgot about it. Yeah. Uh, and you're absolutely right. He, and that was the so that's where that Boston identity on a national stage came from. We are not L.A. Right. Boston is not L.A. We don't right. want to be L.A. And you're not welcome here. Mm-hmm. If you come here, we're going to grind you out. And if you're tough, we'll like you. But if yeah. you're not, you're going to have no love in Boston. Yeah. And um, it was. Yeah. Bird said, I can't. I can't run and I can't um, jump, <laughs> which, which are two things normally important in Boston. But he, but he outworked people, out yeah. hustled you. Um, so tell us more about the podcast. Uh, what kind of people have you interviewed? What kind of people do you want to have on? What so has it been like? Another layer to that Celtics era, um, you know, Bird versus Magic Johnson, is race. Uh, people identified. I thought the you Celtics might. I thought you might go there because white yeah. Irish. Oh, yeah. That's what it represented. Um, And that's a tough one to tackle. But for me, I think it's important because we've sort of like, we act like we've moved on from this and it's not really an issue. Mm -hmm. But I recently did an episode on busing Mm -hmm. um, and desegregation in schools. Sure. And I had two episodes. One was with uh, Steve Cohen, who's a senior lecturer in education at Tufts University. Mm -hmm. He gave us a really long scope 
political kind of legal context. Talked us through the civil rights movement, how it all played out. But then I also spoke to some people that were on the buses, you know, kids that were teenagers, a white Irish Catholic kid that was in Hyde Park, um, and a black woman from Roxbury who ended up in Charlestown. And the effects of that on them were so clear when they spoke about it. It was, I would liken it to like a PTSD. Like they had some stuff yeah. in them that was really tough to, to talk through and you could see that they still hadn't totally resolved it. Yeah. So I think the city still has that dynamic. Um, that's one of the things I'm glad is really being washed away is the racism. But I think one of the hard things is that we can't just say, oh, it's over and it doesn't exist anymore. Right. I think we really have to own up to like what happened and how that affects people, how it affects communities. Yeah, and I agree. And I don't think it's gone, sadly. And I I get offended. Um, I take it personally when like I see people on social media or something, you know, saying, "Oh, there goes you know Boston again." The the, the old uh, you know when come right down to it, that's still a bastion for racism. It came up maybe two years ago in Fenway Park when I forget who the outfielder was for the Orioles, but he claimed he heard someone call him the N-word. And um, and then there was like a lot of finger pointing and maybe he misheard it and no one actually witnessed someone saying this, whatever. But you could tell it, it opened those old wounds. And I, I mean, I certainly, I don't think I've ever heard that word in, in Fenway Park, even from the drunkest of assholes. <laughs> but but um, I know, you know, I have, I, ha- I do have some, bl- I here I am, the, the white guy. And by the way, this is a deep conversation about race between two white dudes. But, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I don't want to be the, I have black friends, but I do have some, <laughs> some black friends, including my buddy Eric, who moved here, uh, moved to Boston just recently, uh, a couple years ago. And... You know, I could tell he, he he was treading carefully, and I could tell that it's still a thing. It's certainly in the professional community and kind of everywhere. Yeah. I was at a wedding over the weekend, and someone said the N-word. Are you kidding me? I swear to God. It's fucked up. Man. Guy's probably, you know, in his 60s. Okay. And he said it, and to me, that's what's so important for me about this project and, and doing these interviews is it's about what's the reality? What is the truth here? Because mm-hmm. everybody wants to be politically correct. I know he would never say it on a mic or on camera, mm-hmm. but I know that people still say it. And I think that's the stuff that we need to really flush out and understand why they're saying it, how it affects the people they say it about. Um, yeah, it's still there for sure. Yeah. And it's not a pretty thing. It's not, I'm not trying to bring any glory behind that. When I talk about Boston identity, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying uh, I want people to see what's really here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yep. And um, there's, all there's a lot of layers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My, I come from, um, on my mom's side, Irish Catholic family, raised in Brookline at Whiskey Point, as my, my Aunt Marge famously always tells a story. Uh, my Aunt Marge, uh, former politician, Margie Claproot. Anyway, but she she's the bleedingest of the bleeding hearts. And so I was raised kind of in the tradition of the... My family was kind of like the Kennedys. We had, like, passion for politics, you know, liberal ideologies, you know, a few alcoholics, um, just like the, <laughs> the right. Kennedys, really. And uh, so, but, but this, what a lot of people don't realize if you're not from Boston is it's it's kind of paradoxical and people assume Massachusetts oh liberal 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 the bl- the bluest of states um, but we have we commonly have Republican governors as we do now we there are some still ass backward places of the state where people are not uh, progressive they're not liberated they're they're not liberal really and so um, it's that, it, and it's kind of that old Yankee thing. And it's like you know, it was only you know uh, what ten years ago that we started selling booze on Sundays. I mean, right? Why, right? I mean, so all that kind of stuff. These most of Boston is similar to my dad in that they will only be changed through force. Like they're not going <laughs> to just choose to say, you know what, you're right. Yep. I'm going to I'm going to change the way I do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my dad wasn't the one who said that. For the record, mm-hmm. my dad is a very liberal great, hardworking, sweet man um, who loves everyone. What does your dad do? uh, He was a union iron worker. He was a local seven iron worker. Wow. And uh, he did his whole career. 
He retired at 60. He well, is very him. happy. Ended up in a good position. And um, He doesn't golf, does he? He doesn't golf. Oh, but good. he fought really hard for union <laughs> rights. Uh, it's something he stands behind. And, you know, I have benefited greatly from it, so... Oh well, that's I, a good. That's a good story. Yeah. That's that. Yeah, I, there's no bloody chance in hell that I will be able to retire at sixty. That's another <laughs> bastion of the past. But uh, but your your dad certainly sounds like he deserves it. Um, yeah, tell me more about like what. So I'm sorry. From grew up oh, in so, Somerville. Yeah, let's talk about ahead. a little bit of Somerville stuff. Yeah. Um, there's one episode that if I could ask people that listen to one, this would be the one, and it would be uh, Bobby Martini. Okay. Bobby Martini, who you may want to actually have on this show, wrote a book called Citizen Somerville. Mm-hmm. He grew up in Somerville. His dad owned a place called Marshall Motors. Mm-hmm. Marshall Motors was the hangout for Winter Hill. That was kind of their home base, yeah. the Winter Hill gang. Sure. Uh, Whitey Bulger. Everybody connects Whitey to Winter Hill. He really pushes back on that, and he says, here's the deal. Howie Winter ran the Winter Hill Gang. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of it. It was his. Whitey was in Southie, and Whitey sort of worked through Winter Hill because Winter Hill was the strongest Irish mob at that time. Mm-hmm. Whitey was the one who was getting everyone indicted and sent to prison. So when Howie and the Winter Hill guys ended up going to jail because of Whitey, Whitey stepped in and tried to take the crown of I'm Winter Hill now because it was the strongest Irish mob. Mm -hmm. But as soon as Howie was back, they kicked him right out. Mm. So he was not, he used the Winter Hill Association because Winter Hill was strong and it it was like, uh, I'm the king of the hill. But um, in reality, Whitey Bulger was not running Winter Hill. Interesting. And those guys, Bobby especially, just describes him as a real scumbag and a weasel and people didn't like him. Not a good guy from no. <laughs> from really all accounts, and we romanticize gangsters, you know, uh, in they're romanticized in Hollywood. I don't know. Did you see the the film, which was eh, not necessarily a great film, but it was Black Mass, the movie version of the book did yeah. you, with Johnny Depp? What did you think? I thought uh, it didn't captivate me as much as I had wanted it to, yeah. and. I don't know what it was that was missing for me, but you know, my favorite movie of all time is Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, I get it. That's trying to catch lightning in a bottle, but mm-hmm. you know, Black Mass for me just didn't have that. Same yeah, you're right. It didn't. Uh, it didn't have the moments of Goodfellas. Goodfellas is one of the movies you can pretty much any scene you get into, you want to watch the end of the scene. <laughs> just exactly. Because uh, it's it's such a cool ride, but and you're just in that world. Yeah, but the the. Johnny Depp playing Whitey, it was, yeah, it, w- it just wasn't an A+. plus. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not, not every movie is going to be Goodfellas. Didn't necessarily click into place. I thought he was portrayed as his, his, uh, I was going to say warts. It's, there should be a, a word stronger than that. His, his flaws, his, his cruelty was depicted in the movie, although I, I, I thought it was kind of uh, half and half when really I think most people who knew him would say just bad guy just a bad guy yeah I, my one whitey not really a whitey story but it's a whitey lawyer story is um, for years I've known Jay Carney who's the criminal defense lawyer represented whitey and in the early days of did he have anything to say about him <laughs> good bad or can yeah, you yeah a lot no see that's what's interesting in the in the early days of this very podcast the Boston podcast you can go back and look in the archives it's one of the first interviews we did and Jay Carney is by all counts an excellent lawyer he's he's one of the probably the top five if people had to tick off like who are the best criminal defense lawyers he represented uh, John Salvi who was the guy who you might remember he, he went up and down Beacon Street and hit two abortion uh, clinics and mur- went in and murdered people do you remember this maybe no. not maybe before your time but uh, pled insanity. Didn't win the case, but um, uh, Jay represented that bad dude. So, and, you know, the criminal defense lawyers, they take pride in representing bad dudes. It, it not because not they condone their actions, just because they just believe in the system so much and the right, right to a defense. Anyway, but as it happens, Jay Carney is kind of a showman. He's got a little bombast about him, and he likes talking. And so this was after Whitey had been sentenced, but there were probably still some legal machinations in play. And Jay's talking to me on the podcast, and I said, so what can you tell me? What was it like? You got to give us some Whitey stories, right? And he said, well, when I first met 
James. He called him James, which was <laughs> I always got a distasteful. Like, don't don't try to humanize him so much. But anyway, he said when I met James, we sat down and I started going over the list of things he's accused of. And here it's like, well, you're accused of murdering this guy. And Whitey said to me, um, that guy. Uh, well, I didn't do that one. Go to the next one. Okay, look at this next one. He goes, that guy. Yeah. I did it. But you ask anyone, that guy was the biggest asshole in the fucking world. Like, that guy deserved it. And, uh, okay, Whitey, how about this one? Well, that one. Oh, yeah. Funny story. Uh, we go up and um, uh, we're like, uh, go to kill the guy. And my gun jams. And so I'm like, uh, Steve, like, uh, Steve Flemmy, uh, you know, can you take care of us? So he shoots him. Ha <laughs> ha. The next guy, and then he went on and on. The next story was like, the, we opened the door to talk to the guy, and, and he said, what do you want? And Or something like, you know, what's up? What's up? What's up as you're dead? Ha. And and so amazing. And so amazing that Jay revealed this to, this to us on a podcast. You can still listen to it. Maybe I'll stick it in uh, right here. If I'm an ambitious editor, you'll hear it now. If not, sorry, folks. Go back and find it in the archives. But um, he... Um, I would love to listen to that one. Sure. Yeah, it's... um. It, it got more attention than, than most on this on uh, this humble little podcast here. But uh, so anyway, um, it, it, I mean, to, to sort of swing well, back to what old Dirty Boston is all about, you know, that's part of our history. Yeah. You know, right? one of the, well, one of the characters in that Bobby Martini interview, uh, Brian Halloran, he okay. would have been in Black Mass. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was kind of an enforcer for the Hill yeah, and, and for Whitey. Uh, he ended up being killed by Whitey at Anthony's Pier 4. He was gunned down. Mm -hmm. But he was Bobby's brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the stories that I heard about him, once they were driving in a car, Halloran was in the passenger seat, someone else was driving, and there were two guys in the back seat. And mm -hmm. there was a hit on one of the guys in the back seat, and it was Halloran's job to kill him. Right. So he turns around, pulls out the gun, and shoots the guy in the head. The driver looks at Halloran and says, you shot the wrong one. Oh, no. And he says, oh, shoots the it's other really one. Good. It says, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Holy jizz. He That's just like, lived in a world of yeah. it was what it was, and he was kind of that ruthless, tough, yeah. you know. Um, it sounded like he, you know, he got mixed up in a lot of coke, and he was just on the ride. He was a wild guy. He was robbing dealers. He, there were no rules for him. That one is straight out of Pulp Fiction, right? Like, oh, oh yeah. Oops, I just shot this guy. Well, that's, the, the book Citizen Somerville really is a, a great book. It's incredible. Um, another crew that I'm, an upcoming episode is a police officer named Dana Owen. Mm -hmm. Dana was an MDC police officer. He was shot by a gang called the Ten Hills Gang. Mm -hmm. The Ten Hills Gang famously robbed the Hilltop Steakhouse. Mm. It was an armed robbery. They stole about $60,000 in cash, mm -hmm. and they killed... Uh, a Wells Fargo guard mm. shot and killed him. Um, that crew hung out at a bar on Mystic Ave in Somerville called the Ten Hills Cafe. Mm. My dad hung out at the Ten Hills Cafe. Wow. He was not robbing any of the banks, <laughs> right. but it was a real rough and tumble scene. And those guys were robbing banks, they were robbing armored cars, um, and Dana Owen was in pursuit of them after the robbery, I think of a postal truck. Uh, and they pulled out a shotgun and they shot him. Mm -hmm. And he spent, you know, about 10 years kind of tracking them, uh, trying to bring them to justice. One of them ended up in Dubai mm. um, or the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he got put in a jail over there for a uh, jewelry heist. Uh, you know, these guys, their lives were just really out of control, really. Mm -hmm. um, they were real outlaws. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, you hear the stories and you always, you know, you wonder if all that was true. I grew up just having sort of a cursory understanding of who Whitey Bulger was. But then as, you know, more and more stories emerge, you're like, this, this shit really went down. And it was, it was, you know, absolutely part of the whole Boston landscape. Um, yeah, and to walk these streets now and to kind of envision that and see what that was, that's, there's something to that for me. Yeah, like walking down Washington Street now, and kind of having in the back of my head this woman NJ who used to be a, a prostitute there, Turn and tricks. talking about the drugs and the pimps and all that stuff. Uh, it's still in there. It's still in the fabric of those streets. I have this memory of being in high school, so this must have been around 1984, maybe or something like that. And you know, riding the T and riding the Red Line with my buddy Steve, and it must have been somewhat 
late, and <laughs> there was a woman who appeared to be mm. a hooker who was was you know dressed like a hooker would dress. I don't need to tell you what that means. And then there are these two dudes, and they and and the three of them all happen to be black people. And, uh, I'll just get that out. Of How the way. old were you at the time? I was about uh, fifteen. Call it you know fifteen, sixteen. You were walking through the combat zone. No, I'm, well, I'm on the red line, probably okay. some not far from the combat zone. Right. But I'm on the red line with my my buddy Steve, and I think like we're the only people kind of on the on the subway car. And I just noticed the, uh, this is just a random story, but I just noticed the two dudes are kind of checking out the hooker. And the hooker is like kind of checking her nails and, and trying to look pretty or whatever. Was she hot? Was she pretty? Well, she, she was tall and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know. Let's I go mean, one she, to ten. <laughs> on a one to ten, how'd she look? Well, I mean, if she didn't have all the hooker garb on, I'd, I'd probably give her a six or a seven. But it was like she was all like. Too trashy? Too, exactly, yeah. I mean, okay. too, too Even trashy. for a 15-year-old? Yeah, well, right. I mean, no, but yeah, of course, everything is amazing when you're 15 and look, there's a woman with big boobs and I don't right. care how I she's I think dressed. anything can kind of get your dick hard at 15. Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. The wind blew and that would happen. Right. But these two dudes were kind of checking her out and and then we, I, we hear one of the dudes whisper to the other he's kind of got a smile on his face and the dude is like and then finally we could hear what he said he goes he goes in drag man it's a dude in drag right <laughs> and so the woman bolts out of her seat stands up and says it's pussy it's pussy man I'll tell you it's pussy <laughs> and, so, and so me and my friend were like oh my god we were like combination of laughing and being completely horrified and um, uh, I assume she was uh, she was telling the truth. <laughs> I assume she was female, so uh, that's why it was hard for me to answer your question, Jason, wow. about whether she was hot. But uh, there you go. But that was just kind of this. this you this gotta li- know. You can't leave doubts on something <laughs> like that. I have a personal experience with this, and I will oh, say boy. you cannot leave the doubt. So I was in LA for work. I was on Tinder, mm-hmm. and I had a little run on Tinder. I got divorced like two years ago, so I've had kind of a stretch of. Wild times. Good for you. I had um, I had like a six to eight month run on Tinder after yeah. I got divorced, and I've never had so much fun. It, exactly. It's, it's so easy. Anyway, go ahead. You tell me. So, uh, so I get to LA. I match with this this chick. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's Asian. She's attractive, and she just jumps right in. She's talking about I'll do this. I'll do that. Oh Starts sending me pictures. The whole thing. So uh, I go into work the next day. I'm at the office, and I show this guy Michael that I work with. And he's a gay guy. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, I don't know, Jason. Uh, you might want to double check this one. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. I asked her. She's not a hooker. Right. Uh, he goes, I don't think she's a hooker. I think she could be a guy. So were you questioning? Because when you first said it, I mean, I know the way you set up the story, I could tell where it's headed. But um, I would have been suspicious about, yeah, hooker or some sort of scam. Because anything that comes over your phone, right. you know what I mean? It's too good to be true. Yeah. Uh, well, no, because honestly, Tinder so far had kind of shown me that the rules don't apply, and like you never know. I got on it at an old get. at an older age, and it was very easy to meet someone. But I, I don't have a specific, I don't have a memory of people saying I'm going to do this to you and that to you. But anyway, please continue. <laughs> Again, your so uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, she's Asian. They're typically not that curvy. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> The flat chest, no big deal. So anyway, now we're really doing the math. Yeah. But now it's in my head, and I'm kind of oh like yeah. thinking about it. So I meet her up at the bar. Uh, I was staying downtown at the Ace Hotel, and we sit for a drink. And I'm looking for the signs, you know, mm. like the Adam's apple, the whole thing. <laughs> Nothing really identifiable. Okay. Nothing that would lead me to believe that she is, but it's still kind of in the back of my mind. So I said, Hey, why don't we go down to my room? It's quieter. Mm-hmm. You know, we could talk privately, whatever. Mm. Um, we go down to the room, and now I have this dilemma. I'm like, look, if I if I anything happens, I've already crossed the line, and I can't uncross it. I can't come yeah. back. So I need to know before I initiate anything. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this genius plan of let's play rock paper scissors, and yeah. the loser takes off an item of clothing. Oh. I figured I could try to get her naked and see what was under there before anything. <laughs> so I win the first one. She takes off her earrings. Right. I proceed to lose five in a row oh, in my boxes. And okay. I'm like, this is fucking stupid. Like, I don't want to play this anymore. <laughs> this is, so then I, I just said, you know what? I hate to say this to you. I know this is rude, but are you, are you trans? Yeah. And I actually said the word tranny, which I've now learned is wrong mm, and you shouldn't yeah. say, but I didn't know that at the time. I thought that was okay to say. It's like Jimmy or something. It's like an affectionate term, but 
Anyways, now, the trans thing, is the correct term. Now, the thing is, I know why you asked, because you can't, you, you, you're at a point where you, you got to know, but there's no way you're winning after you ask that question, right? You want to know what you're dealing with, Frank. <laughs> yeah, that's I know, all but it she, is. But like, she's not going to go, no, silly, you know, let's have sex. If, if, if the answer is no, she's going to be offended, right? Anyway. So she kind of gives me the like, what are you serious about? And I was yeah. like, listen, I was like, do you have a dick or not? <laughs> and she goes like, no, of course I don't have a dick. She goes, first you accused me of being a hooker. Now you accuse oh, me boy. of having a dick. And I said, well, I'm going to need to see. Yeah. <laughs> so she pulls down her pants yeah, right. and shows me. There's no penis. There's no penis. There's a vagina, I take it. There, well, there's no penis. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and they said, all right, like, oh. spread it open. Yep. Let's, it, <laughs> the crazy thing to me, and this even put my radar higher up, is that she didn't just bail immediately. That's what I, that's right? why I'm So surprised. something is like, right. okay, what's up here? So then she lays down in the bed and like spreads her legs. This is really romantic, and, by uh, the way. This is where I feel a little bad, but I pulled up my phone and I Googled, (laughs) and again, at the time, listen, at the time I didn't know it was the wrong word, but I Googled tranny vagina (laughs) and a bunch of them popped up and I said, look, honestly, based on this vagina, like you're a hundred percent woman. I I have no doubt. It's legit. It looks great. (laughs) But if you scroll through these, I was like, some of these look really good too. (laughs) And frankly, like when in doubt. You you're just gonna have to leave. So and that's I dragged this poor woman your wife. through this, no. <laughs> and then she got up and she just said. Then she got kind of on the, you know, the defensive, rightfully. Yeah. And she's like, "What are you Took like a long. vagina expert now? You, who are you? How many have you even seen?" And I was like, "Well, you know, like maybe thirty with strip clubs and all that, and if you count porn, I've seen thousands. So I mean." <laughs> I you felt justified have, you, to say. You could have said, okay, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I'm an internist studying to become an OBGYN, and uh, I just haven't gotten the, uh, the time in, in the yeah, office. I should have just bluffed I need through to. it. I, haven't, I, I, uh, I needed to cram for this vagina exam that I have tomorrow, and uh, I needed to do what I needed to do. But, I, yeah, I'm shocked. So, what, so end of the day, I passed, and she left, and, and, and that was it. And, Okay, so what you're saying is, was she? What? It, it's not that she was a, a man, but she might have been a man. Before. She could have been, and, and and it was just these sort of little indices, these sort of like curves here and there, or like it, a lot uh, of times it's the shape of a face, maybe. Well, face. it was like little things, like it it looked kind of like like she had like man boobs but lady nipples, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so it was all just a real confusion, like nothing was a hundred percent. Everything, and maybe Gay Michael had just put it in my head, and that's why I couldn't shake it, but whatever it was, that was my... Man Boobs, Lady Nipples, the (laughs) the worst movie on Cinemax in 1987. And and that's the whole thing. Whether she was or wasn't, at that point I was kind of over it, and it was more just of, you know, the detective work of trying to get to the bottom of the case. I... Well, we're we'll, we're uh, we're not done with the podcast yet. We'll be back in a moment with more of of Jason's sexy adventures. Um, <laughs> but I do need to take a minute to tell you about the, our sponsor, the U.S. Postal Service, second largest employer in the U.S., offering paid training and ways to move up. Apply today at usps.com backslash careers. From mail carriers to corporate management, the Postal Service works together to provide efficient, affordable service to the American public. The workers are the backbone of its service, and the USPS wants to develop and advance careers, so its development programs train and prepare employees for promotions and growth in a variety of business areas. Everything you need to know is at the website, usps.com slash careers. It's the policy of the Postal Service to provide equal employment opportunity and prevent employment discrimination. That would include discrimination uh, against people based on their sexual orientation or whether they might resemble somebody who used to be a man. Jason Faulkner, are you listening? (laughs) Uh, The Postal Service seeks to attract, and I already said that, uh, they value each other's differences and work to promote collaboration, flexibility, and fairness so that all employees are able to participate and contribute to their full potential. Apply today. The website, once again, usps.com backslash careers. The United States Postal Service, deliver for the nation. Thank you, U.S. Postal Service, for enduring that uh, uh, interesting rift. On honestly, I use Postal Service for a lot of shipping. Um, yep. Their flat rate packaging is amazing. Yeah. Because it's like, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to weigh it. You basically just, flat rate boxes, it's a one-stop solution. Thank you for saying that. They yeah. are, of course, we're biased here because they're sponsors of the show, but 
they really endured a storm. You kind of thought the U.S. Postal Service might get blown off the planet by all the private carriers, but to me, they've kept up. They've kept up, and um, obviously you know, they're doing well. Smaller size packaging, I think they actually offer the best rate. So yeah, and smaller size packaging is an issue. I understand you had to deal with when you were on Tinder. So um, <laughs> uh, sorry, terrible joke. Terrible. Joke. So uh, one thing I do want to talk about is you could go. We use. Uh, Postal service shipping for the site Dirty Old Boston. Oh, okay. So I wanted to get into this. So we need to get into this. Okay. So to set the stage, just from where I sit here, Jason um, dialed me up and said, I'd love to be a guest on your show. I said, fantastic. And by the way, I had known kind of in a a cursory way about Dirty Old Boston. And... um, and then I, you know, did a little research, learned about your podcast. I was impressed. I'm excited to meet you. But then I start, I'm online, and, like, there's old Dirty Boston, and then there's Dirty Old Boston. And I said to you when you came in here, are you fucking with me? Because I don't know which one is which. So here we go. That's the stage of set. So reveal all, please, Jason. So I started working on uh, doing these old shirts and kind of like nostalgic memorabilia stuff of old Boston. And there's places like in Somerville, there's a place, the Paddock, which was an old mob joint, Triple O's, which was Whitey's Hangout, stuff like that. Kind of these like orphaned brands that like people it. in Boston know about. Oh, I like it, yeah. Um, and somebody said to me, hey, you know, you should reach out to the guy from Dirty Old Boston. His right. name's Jim, uh, and he has a Facebook page and an Instagram. And wrote a book. Uh, and he wrote a book, yeah. yes, uh, Dirty Old Boston. So... Mm-hmm. I saw that and I said, hey, this is perfect. This is like a real fit. Yeah. Uh, I reached out to Jim. We talked about it. And Jim's an older guy. Uh, he wasn't super savvy in terms of like web or all that. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, like, let me work on this and I'll do it. And you could promote it through the site and we'll kind of partner up on it. Because I believed in the brand of Dirty Old Boston. Yeah, uh, it had a great it. audience. Mm-hmm. And it just had the identity. It was like he knew what it was. Mm-hmm. So... We start working together. We're doing all these things. And I come to find out that Jim had sold the rights to merchandise and web to his publisher. Um, And it was like, you know, well, what are we going to do about this? Well, she hasn't said anything. So I reached out to the publisher and I said, listen, here's what I'm doing. I just want to be covered and I don't want to have any issues down the road. So to be clear, you wanted to do merchandising for a lot of these places in Boston that are maybe now defunct. So it would say, like, the name of the old bar, and then it would say Dirty Old Boston. No, it, it wouldn't say Dirty Old Boston. Okay. It would basically so why do you like, need them, then, I guess is my question. Well, that's what I decided to say, okay. uh, or that's what I ended up realizing. Yep. But so I made a deal with a publisher, and it wasn't cheap. You know, I spent about $20,000 on books and some other stuff to, like, secure that license and yeah. have the rights to the merch. Uh, and with the podcast, Jim and I really started to butt heads because mm. he felt like... He didn't want me talking about sex. He didn't want me talking about drugs. He didn't like some of the language I was using. And in some ways, I resented it because I felt like, hey, like you're not the only identity of what old Boston is. Yeah. I grew up in Somerville. This is, I still live here. This is really me. And these are the people that I really know and deal with. And this is how they feel and how they speak. It's kind of ironic that the founder of Dirty Old Boston is fighting you on, you know, the appropriateness of language. What it really like was, and what I came to realize, because I, trust me, I changed and I tried and I did it his way. And it was that uh, Dirty Old Boston was his thing and it was his personal identity. And he just wasn't going to give up any control or any mm. of that to anyone. Yeah. It didn't matter who it was. Um, and so we started to have some conflicts around it. And when he decided to end it, I said, well, I hope you realize that I'm taking uh, the web and the merchandise with me. Yeah, and he's done he the work. Felt, yeah. Well, not just the work, but legally I have the contracts and the rights to it. Right. Um, you know, and I think he was a little sour about that, but hey, that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. So I told him, I said, look, Jim, you may think that this is your concept and you're the only one that can post old photos and you're the only one that can talk about old Boston, but uh, I'm going to prove you wrong and let the work speak for itself. Now, so, so you're so now you're old, dirty Boston. So now I am old, dirty Boston in the face of him. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of that as a fuck you to Jim, yes. in all honesty. Yeah. Uh, because well, I know it really digs him. And your logo is like the same. Well, like, I designed that logo for him. Okay. So this is the thing. I That's did all this fair. branding work. I yeah. did all this thing, and he was like, "This isn't good enough. Fuck that. I don't want this." 
Um, and I said, all right, then I'm going to take it and use it for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I put the work in, I put the time in, I put the expense in. So let's see. Let's see how it shakes out. And I would be happy any day, any time to have Jim sit across and debate him on this. Uh, well, Jim, know. we've got four, uh, we got three open mics in the studio right now. Yeah, Come and he slung in. a lot of mud on me, honestly, on that Facebook huh. page, claiming that I, you know, hacked him and did all this bullshit. And frankly, uh, I think he kind of went after my reputation, you know, as a business person and personally, and I did nothing but try to help him and build that brand up. And I saw the potential. I still do. I think it's a great thing, but I think it's never going to get anywhere with, um, with the way that he deals with it and would shuts you, people off. You describe this as a learning experience. I would. Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, but I don't take any fault. I mean, you know what? Even when things go wrong, you realize that that's not the way to do it. Mm-hmm. But I've dealt with enough people in my life to know when someone is not going to change. And when that happens, you have to just let it go. You okay. can't try and, you know. It, it's part of, I don't want to wax too poetic, but it's, it's part of growing up and, and kind of learning uh, things, <laughs> things about life when you have an experience like that. Because I had a similar one. I'm not going to be able to give details for, because of legal reasons, but you get into a partnership and you don't, you see all the good at the beginning and you seem like you're a creative guy like me and you get, ex- I can tell you get excited about projects like I do, but all the podcasts we produce here, etc. But, and I was, and this was something non-podcast related, but you know, got into a business situation with someone, only saw the positive, so happy. And then flash forward a couple of years later and the other guy sees it, you know, um, well, I was just channeling my Mark Wahlberg there. You must be the other guy. Uh, sees it com- differently, and you're like, how- and then um, the other sort of similarity to your situation is I remember people saying to me, well, just walk away, let it go. You know, what do you care? You get it, so entrenched. It's yeah. so hard to let right. go. Yeah. And like, you, the, and you learn, there's no right answer, but in some situations, the answer is going to be to let go. It's just, uh, fuck you, fine, you're done, have, you know, let the baby have his bottle, <laughs> as they used to say. And, but then it's like, well, the other, the counter argument is stick up for yourself. You know, don't, don't let the asshole get away with what the asshole did. And I'm not uh, saying, I'm not putting this directly on Jim, but just in general. Well, hey, I and, mean, some people are happy to, what I've learned is some people will take, take, take until you stop giving. Yeah. And you have to learn when to stop giving, you know. Right. And that's really the road that we got to. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you've got an awesome podcast, which I will continue to plug here. The Old Dirty Boston Podcast. And as uh, Jason pointed out, go to the go to the Instagram where you... So I take it you, you do what we do is when an episode comes out, you pump it out on Instagram. So people Pump can, it out on Instagram. Yeah. Old Dirty Boston is the Instagram. And you can go on the website uh, that is still me. It's dirtyoldboston.com. Mm-hmm. You can get copies of the book. I still highly recommend the book. There's old photos That's on there. Noble of you. There's old, uh, you know, there's shirts and merch on there. Um, and, you know, again, I'm doing this because I believe in what it represents. These are the people that I kind of grew up with that, like, built a big part of my personality and my identity. And I hope that other people can enjoy them, learn about them, and they'll be as excited about hearing... Uh, Uncle Johnny talk about his escort service as I was. You know? Yeah. How many episodes are you in? Do you know? Uh, we're at about 10 episodes right now. Okay. So still still kind of a baby. And oh, yeah. I mean, I don't mean that as a put down. I mean, that mm. I, I, I just say it because there's so much potential for this. There were so many stories in, in the city and old ones that you could dig up. And, you know, uh, we produce a podcast here back to the Beatles with David Galan and Chachi Lopred. And Chachi was one of the first guys I thought of describing the uh, in connection with the old Boston that you because he was the you know the longtime producer for WBCN which was a top rock radio station and how many you know clubs he was in and, and dirty back rooms and people that he met that came through this city and Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles band and the early days of Aerosmith and Billy Squire and all yep. and 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 uh, he'd be a great guy for you to have on the pod to be happy I would to, love to, that, I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell him um, so make sure you check it out, Old Dirty Boston Podcast. Um, I'll have to have you back, Jason, because I feel like we've just yeah, thanks scratched so much, the surface. David. And honestly, I would love to hear more about what you're doing here, um, some yep. of the overlaps. And For sure, yeah. No, you and I, you and I will talk offline. And on, do we have to? Do we have to only talk on the podcast, or are we allowed to talk <laughs> to the podcast too? 
You're well, a podcast guy. If it's not recorded, what, what's yeah, the point? Yeah, what's the of, point? Uh, well, then I'll have you back right away. But yes, I think, you know, we we do have a community here, pod617.com. We are still relatively new, but constantly adding new people to the lineup. The only And the only common thread is Boston. And um, so someone yeah, and came I in. I love that you guys are relocalizing uh, the content that you're doing. You know, everything now is national, and it's like, hey, Let's stick to like what we really know, what's close to us. You can either go really big or you can go really small and get like the real juice of something. So well, now I love that you're doing that. Appreciate it, man. You're you're making my pitch for me because there, there absolutely has to be room for local podcast networks because think of how easy it is for guests uh, guests uh, to be honed from the other shows. I'm not saying that well at all. In other words, you got you got a show. We got a show about a wedding planner. We got a show from a divorce attorney. They've each appear on each other's shows out of the spirit of kind of humor and working together in an unusual way. And there are all kinds of possibilities for that. Cross promotion, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, we wanted it to sound like a great, you know, local radio station where yeah. you could you could tune in at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. and you're not going to be hearing the same person, but it would have maybe a similar vibe. And meanwhile, we do pods on such a variety of topics. It 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 can go from comedy to the professional world, but well, yeah, and there's so we much reference already in what you say. Like when we talk about the combat zone, or we talk about yeah. the garden. For anyone that's in Boston or from Boston or has lived here. That instantly triggers a thousand memories in your brain you got that it. we don't have to explain to you. You just yep. get it. Yeah. And so that's the joy of like local media to me. Yeah, you know the difference between wicked awesome and just wicked. Right. Like you, you can use wicked just on its own. I was fucking wicked the other day. Thanks for jo- <laughs> thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the Boston Podcast on behalf of Jason Faulkner at the Old Dirty Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. Oh, I forgot to tell you to share. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend or a colleague. Spread that good juju. And if you want your own podcast, go to pod617.com for all the info. Thanks to our sponsor, the United States Postal Service. My name is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston. But if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Enjoy your day, everybody. Thank you, Dave.